The Origins Podcast is now a part of the Origins Project Foundation. Please consider supporting the podcast and the foundation by going to www.originsprojectfoundation.org. Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this week's episode, I have a conversation with the fascinating American neuroscientist, Joseph Ledoux. He has been one of the uh, leaders in trying to understand the nature of consciousness, in particular emotions, and among the emotions, fear, which he's become well known for. And his uh, evolving view of that relationship between emotion and consciousness and the different parts of the human brain, he discusses in in an interesting recent book called The Deep History of Ourselves, the four billion year story of how we got our conscious brains. And that caused me to want to have a discussion with him. It's a perfect topic for our Origins podcast. I've been aware of his work for some time and a fan of it and a fan of his books. Also, what I particularly like is he, again, continues our own efforts to connect science and culture in unusual new ways. In his case, not only did he come into science in a rather unusual way, as you'll hear, but he also has a history in music, and he's actually the lead singer and songwriter for the band The Amygdaloids. So he's the second rock star scientist we've had a discussion with on the Origins podcast, the first being Brian May. We focused on how our view of the brain has changed over time and how we're understanding the brain is much more complex than we may have thought. We have to be very wary when we look at brain responses and emotions to try not to assume a kind of chicken and egg relationship, which comes first, the bodily response of fear, for example, and then the conscious awareness of fear or the other way around. So I hope you'll enjoy this fascinating conversation with a fascinating scientist. And with no further ado, Joseph Ledoux. Well, thank you very much for letting us uh, into your office, Joe. And uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about consciousness, which is a subject that interests everyone. And, uh, And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is is the connections you made between consciousness and evolution, which which is the subject of your last book, uh, the deep history of ourselves, and there's a lot there, and there's a lot we're going to go through, and I want to get there hopefully eventually, but I want to first talk about, um, since this is an origins podcast, about your own origins. What, uh, what first of all, what got you interested in neuroscience? What, why why did you choose that area? All right. Well, it was a perfectly natural route. I had two degrees in marketing. Oh, okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> and it was the late 60s, and it wasn't very cool to be in marketing. Yeah. And um, But that's the kind of path I started on. It was yeah. too late to get out. And so I, I started getting interested in, like, consumer psychology and mm-hmm. consumer protection, oh. um, you know, naders, raiders kind of thing yeah. back then. What got you interested in marketing? Was it you? Do, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I grew up in a small town in Louisiana called okay. Eunice, a uh-huh. you know, population of ten or eleven thousand people. And my father was a butcher, and my mother wrapped the meat in the mm-hmm. meat market. And the year I was graduating, I was looking forward to going off to college at LSU and mm-hmm. just get the hell out of yeah, this get the hell out of town. town. Yeah. And the year I was graduating from high school, LSU opened up a junior college in uh-huh. town, and they wanted me to stay. Oh, and okay. And so we negotiated a deal where I would go to LSU, study banking, and come back and be a banker, and um, then I could go to Baton Rouge. Oh, I, I said, see. okay, and <laughs> obviously I didn't do that. But. 
one thing led to another, and I started taking psychology courses to understand motivation and behavior. And uh, I found I was interested in social psychology, and then I got interested in experimental. Then I took a class with a guy studying the brain and memory and fell in love with that and said, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And he um, introduced me to some other folks, and I applied to graduate school, and one place got, you know, accepted me, and that yeah. was that. That was Stony Brook, and that's yeah. where I met Mike Kazanaga. Was that a difficult transition? I mean, you were to, from thinking about the brain to actually doing experiments? No. No? No, because, you know, I was uh, studying, I joined Mike Kazanaga's lab, and Mike was studying split-brain patients. This is 1974, you know, when you left, right, front, back, yeah. not a lot of gory details yeah. in, in that kind of work. <clears throat> That's mm -hmm. all you really needed to know about. Yeah. So it was a good kind of slow entry point. And um, after I graduated, I went to Cornell Medical School and worked in the lab of Don Reese, who was a neurobiologist, and he had a kind of neurobiological candy store where every known technique uh -huh. to humans was, was there, to biologists. So... I, you know, I spent 12 years, like, first learning more neuroanatomy and then learning some physiology, then some biochemistry. So it was a good kind of, like, um, I don't know, mentorship, tutorialship over 12 years. And that's when I applied to come to NYU and was accepted here to have a faculty job. Well, it, so, yeah, it was it, there was a, definitely a learning curve there. But the interesting thing, when you talked about that, it may sound strange, but I see some Connections between neuroscience and cosmology. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, let's and, go there. Good ones, and then <clears throat> some other ones where they're quite different. But uh -huh. one of the things was that when I, um, my background's in particle physics, but but when I started to get interested in cosmology as a way to probe speculative questions, but also to really provide evidence, cosmology was an art. It was there was a lot of talk, there were a lot of theories, and there were a few observations, and they, you know, they used to say cosmologists are are, are, ne are never right but never in doubt. You know? And uh, <laughs> it's uh, true of a lot of science. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> well, I tend to think of neuroscience in some sense. There's been a lot of talk, and over the, but what changed cosmology, I suspect, is the change, same thing that changed neuroscience. I may be wrong here. Is the sudden import of new tools, mm -hmm. new observables that turned cosmology from the 1970s to now, that right. difference, from an art to a, a well, maybe, probably more of a precision science, maybe than neuroscience, right. I don't know, but it turned it into a science. Right. You need new tools, new techniques, and I assume that's what's taken neuroscience and turned it from sort of an art into a science. Absolutely, but not always in a good way. Okay, Because sometimes the methodology takes precedence over the ideas. Oh, interesting. And because neuroscience is a very, very empirically based, bottom-up driven thing. Mm -hmm. But we need big ideas too. And that's one of the things that, you know, was instilled in me through my mentor, Mike Gazaniga. It's like, you know, what's the big question? Why are we doing all this stuff? Okay, well, and so I guess you've been, I mean, you've been known for big ideas, some of which you claim you're responsible for big ideas, at least big ideas that other people seem to think you had that, yeah, right. it, that you've sort of <laughs> said you feel a little responsible for. I mean, the idea of the fear factor, if you want to call right. it that, that the amygdala and fear are intimately tied and somehow, as far as I can tell, part of the purpose of the new book is to is to set things straight. Right, exactly. Well, I did that in my previous book too, Anxious, but yeah. it, didn't, it didn't get straight enough. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I kept on going. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not guilt-free in all of this yeah. because I was very sloppy with the language. I went back and read The Emotional Brain, which I published in 1996, and I'm definitely talking about the amygdala and fear in there. So it's like I can't 
say I'm guilt-free. But do you think of it, interesting when you say uh, the big ideas, do you think of yourself as more of a theorist? or Well, I don't really see in physics as theorists and experimentalists. Right. I know in most other fields are the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But what drives you? Mm. Is the ideas or the techniques or, or what, what gets you most excited? Yeah, I mean, because I came into this from, I, you know, I had no science courses in high school, college. Mm -hmm. Maybe I had chemistry or something in high school, but no math. I was really bad at math. Um, so I'm not a, a natural science, a scientist at all. And, you know, I have tremendous imposter syndrome. I guess a lot of people do, <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah. I really deserve mine because I, I feel like I just kind of flowed through this thing on an easy track through the split brain work, got learned a few techniques, was able to do some stuff. But it was all really about, you know, what I wanted to understand, which was consciousness, which mm. I had studied in split brain patients and got hooked on. But I figured I needed to kind of get the basics down through studying the brain in more detail to come back to that. Okay, well, that's good, because I think that's what will be, we'll try that arc when okay. we discuss things. Um, I should also say, yeah, I have imposter consciousness a lot, but uh, but I do think the other thing that connects neuroscience and, and, and cosmology for me, uh, in my own mind, is that they're the two most fundamental questions that I can think of. And, and for a long time, when I grew up, I wanted, I didn't know what a neuroscientist was, and my mother you know, neither my parents went to finished high school either. And so my mother wanted me to be a doctor. And and what I wanted to be was a neurosurgeon because I figured that was understanding the right. brain. I didn't think I didn't know the difference between right. science and, and medicine. Right. Because the fundamental questions are the origins of the universe and the origins of consciousness. Right. To me, those are the two most interesting sort of fundamental frontiers. So I kind of have a little bit of envy right. being because right. I, I took the easy route, mm -hmm. which was to understand the universe. And I'm always, <laughs> okay. and, and well, I really think in a way, and, and I think I, I, I'm not just being facetious there because we physicists have it easier, but at the same time, I'm skeptical mm -hmm. because in physics, w there's clear, well-defined experiments, things you can test, things you can falsify. And I'm always suspicious because the brain is so complicated. It, it's not quite as bad as doing maybe social science where it's even more complicated in the uh -huh. sense of how to, to to separate out variables and determine what really what right. what an experiment is really telling you and so i want to put on to some extent i'll try while we talk to put on that skeptic hat right. of of how do we know this because physics is really easy mm -hmm. but your your book is very lucid and makes it seem it seems to me in retrospect obvious that 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 some of the confusions people have uh -huh. are really confusions but I want to try and understand why, because a lot, a lot of it seems plausible. Mm -hmm. And and I've written about plausibility in cosmology too, but okay. plausible and knowing are two different right. things. And so I'm still not 100% convinced that we're yet at the point of knowing. Right. And and how I'd like to talk about how we can get there, just so you're aware. Okay. And in terms of that skepticism, actually, it's really, to me, it's perfectly appropriate that there's this big pile of books behind you, many of which are unconsciousness. And I had a friend These of mine. Just things that come in the mail. Yeah, of course. I know. Same thing happens to me in my office. They're just piled up. They get sent in the mail, and sometimes I, I, I shouldn't look at them. like say that. In the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they may be friends. But someone once said to me, and it's 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 stayed in my mind that 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 knowledge in a field is inversely proportional to the number of books about it. <laughs> and and one of the things that you can't help if you're an outsider, it seems to me, is consciousness. There's books oh every, God, yes. to, to all come out all the time, each of which is providing a revolutionary new theory of consciousness. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, and therefore, um, they can't all be right. And, I, and, and so 
one of the things that did frustrate me, and and because I was looking for this, because I, I'm not convinced we know, is is I didn't find in in the book a, de- a definition of consciousness. I found there, you know, auto noetic, noetic, right, right. anoetic, conscious. Right. And maybe we'll talk. I'd like those terms to be defined for right. people later on because maybe we'll okay. use them. But what is consciousness? Well, you know, that's why there's so many books. Yeah, I think so. And I, I still don't know. It's like, what is life? Is so another... rather than trying to, um, you know, give you a, a really crisp definition of what it is, I, I like to think of it in terms of things about it we can study. Okay. And I think these three categories that, that you just mentioned, autonoetic, noetic, and anoetic, uh, are ways of thinking about it that are not so difficult and mysterious as the, the big topic is. Um, and so my goal is to try and use those is to leverage some way of relating those concepts to the brain. So autonoetic consciousness, well, let's start with anoetic. Anoetic okay. is more of a kind of a primitive um one person has called it almost unconscious form of consciousness, like the most primitive kind of minimal awareness that an organism could have. And so most of the time we talk about these things in, in terms of mammals. So I don't want to talk about octopus and you know, mm. whatever else, people, my plants or whatever they want to throw consciousness into. But let, let's just stick with mammals because that's hard enough as it is. So anoetic would be some kind of primitive <clears throat> state that a, a mammal could have and be in the presence of something um, useful or harmful and maybe have some inkling of awareness about it. But it wouldn't be a a very elaborate kind of thing. Um, A more elaborate form would be something called noetic consciousness, which is um, something where you have a semantic knowledge, piece of information about what something is um, in part based on memory of experiences with that thing. And so the anoetic would be almost kind of a more innate um, sense that you have about something. Noetic is a learned semantic representation. It doesn't have to be verbally semantic. It could be uh, nonverbal semantic. It's just like, you know, I if I, even without a word cup, I could know that this thing could be used to drink and stuff. So it's knowledge about something, knowledge about something. Knowledge about something, which is based Functional. to some extent on, on experience with yeah. it, right? So well, it's knowledge yeah. that's gained by experience, so you know that this cup you can right. drink with, okay. And then autonoetic consciousness is consciousness in which the experiencing individual is part of the experience. So if, um, for me, for, for example, I say that emotions are an example of these autonoetic kinds of states, because in order to be, to have an emotion about something, it has to be about you or something you care about, your child. Uh, William James said, well, you know, we can have the extended self, which includes our yacht and bank account, but we can drop those and just <laughs> talk about our family and friends and so forth, social. Things. I don't want to drop my yacht and bank account. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so th- these three terms come from the psychologist Indel Tolving, who was trying to characterize three forms of uh, uh, consciousness in relation to different kinds of memory. And autonoetic consciousness is related to what he called episodic memory, memory about the episodes of your life, your personal past and your personal future, uh, expected future. So it, it requires a, a brain that can do what Tolving said uh, is mental time travel, the ability to put yourself in your past and to predict or have an expectation about what your future might be and to experience your present. So, um, but uh, to do that, you, you 
we're not, it can't be just a memory about the past because a lot of animals can have memories about the past and they can also make predictions about the future. But to have yourself in those representations where it's you in your past and you in a, a possible future, uh, that's a special kind of thing that most people, I, I think maybe there are probably some who would disagree, but many um, philosophers and scientists would say that that kind of ability is and in terms of scientific evidence, something that humans seem to be able to do. But even apes have trouble with this kind of more personalized mental time travel where their self is moving in space and time. Given that, one of the ideas that I have, and this, you know, every time I write a book, I'm at the end and then I start to figure something out. It's too late to like get it in there. I know the feeling. Uh, and anxious it was about the why, my understanding of why um, you know, anti-anxiety medications don't work. So I had to write a lot of stuff about that later. And then in, in this book, it was about how these three kinds of consciousness allow us to uh, maybe make predictions about what kinds of, what, an, what different animals might have. Um, because we know that, for example, other primates have a region called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's in the prefrontal cortex, it's lateral, and in the dorsal part of the lateral uh, area. So, um, but other mammals don't have that. Humans, being primates, have it. But there's also a little spot in the prefrontal cortex of the human called the frontal pole that only humans have. It's kind of a, a relatively recent uh, discovery. It's not like there's a, a bump there or anything that you could just look at and see, but in terms of parcellation and analysis of the connectivity and the molecules and the genes, this region doesn't even appear in other um, primates. So if we've got a human-specific kind of brain piece and uh, a primate-specific kind, and then we also have mammalian-specific kinds, Maybe though, if we could figure out what those three things do in the human brain, that might give us clues about what the other animals that have those and only have those could do. Now, the, the flaw in that is that the human brain didn't just—it's not just layering, but each of those kinds of things, those systems have like continued to evolve in, uh, as primates and humans come along. But it would give us clues. Great, you're—we're going to get there. And to, uh, in fact, the 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 frontal pole. When I, when I was reading your book, I thought you know, as wow, there's something. Something just for humans. So, if you know, it must be maybe is this that the seat of consciousness? I've learned, of course, reading your book that the, the things are much more distributed. But I think you hit the point of why it, 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 the confusion and the non confusion, which intrigued me because if I hadn't been aware to some extent of the history of the field, I might have assumed it was natural. I, I think most people throughout history from religions on. Think of the brain, the language, culture, consciousness as the thing that separated us from, quote, animals. Most right. of them thought it was divinely inspired. Yeah, right, right. That's what God gave us right. that it didn't give them. So they saw this natural dichotomy. Yeah. Instead, from what I understand and thinking about this, there's not. In fact, you know, the first one early on in your book, you say similarities only make sense in terms of differences. And a key goal of the book is to provide an account of the things most different about us, language, culture, our capacities for thinking and reasoning, and our ability to reflect upon who we are. These are new, but have deep roots that extend to the beginning of life. So you want to make those connections, but right. at the same time show what's different. Right. And I, I, in some sense, what's the, what's the source of this, of this <laughs> well, sudden, uh, you know, for yeah. the person on the street, they think, oh, we're not animals. And then, but neuros, or at least for neuroscience, suddenly we were. 
Is it Darwin? Yeah, um, you know, I hate to say anything bad about Darwin. Yeah, I was going to say, is it probably Darwin? <laughs> I was... But, um, you know, I mean, obviously he, he was a great biologist, yeah. but he's, it's been said he was not so hot a psychologist. <laughs> yeah. And yet he was very influential in psychology. So Darwin, you know, lived in Victorian England, and this was a time when something called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals as an afterthought children uh, was um, was created. Uh, the, the novel Black Beauty about the horse who had been mistreated by its uh, pe- by his people and um, um, the uh, it was a narrated from the point of view of the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of you know concern with this sort of thing. So Darwin proposed that um, uh, in his I think it was 1872 book um, the emotions in man and animals that, Emotions, human emotions are states of mind that have been inherited from animals. So I don't know how you inherit a state of mind, but, <laughs> but that's what he had in mind. He said, well, there's some neural things. Okay. So the, the, um, um, someone asked him, you know, a reporter in an interview, he said, Charles, why do you talk about animals as having, and, and he talked a lot about hum, animals having all these human emotions, like dogs had a, a fear, could have a kind of a fear of God. They feared their master and, you know, tried to please him and so forth. So, so he was pretty, a pretty bad sinner on the anthropomorphism uh, uh, scale. There. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he said, well, so they, the reporter said, why do you treat animals as having human-like emotions, whereas everything else you talk about humans as having animal-like things? And he said, well, it's kinder and uh, it will be easier for the people, for the public to accept that uh, than t- for them to accept that we have animal emotions. So uh, with that, and his book has been revered and it became the basis of you know, much of the, the field of the psychology of emotions and um, um, the whole, there's a whole field, a gigantic field. Most people think of emotions as these mental states we've inherited from animals. We, you know, we have a fear. Uh, we've acquired fear because every animal has to deal with fear and danger. And obviously they're afraid. A rat that's freezing in the presence of a cat is afraid of the cat. Why else would it freeze? And that's how I started writing this book because I started asking, well, how far back does this detection of danger go? And I didn't get to the end till I got to the beginning you, of life. Yeah, in fact, well, you know, <laughs> you know, your book sets out the premise and and starts right at the beginning of life. And and I kept asking myself in some sense why we're, we're going so yeah, far back. Right. And I understood it later on uh, as I read things. But what is amazing about it is by setting the premise, almost everything else seems not obvious, but but so logical after the fact. The fact that, yeah, it's natural for me to assume I have a dog, I have a cat, and that they're feeling things. And we'll talk about that, of course. But when you point out very early in the book that behavior, learning, and memory don't even require a nervous system, then a system that I think v- most people would argue would accept the fact that a that a protozoa doesn't have feelings. Right. But the fact that if, that that a protozoa or plants can respond uh, to stimuli and 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 move towards it or away from right. it in response for survival, that once you realize that, it kind of seems obvious that. That that behavior doesn't depend upon thinking. I guess <laughs> well, not to everybody, because that to other people that means that plants have feelings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I guess it, it, it. Well, 
But the notion, as, as you say, I think somewhere at the very beginning, that, that I will show you that there's indeed good evidence that the same brain systems control survival behaviors in human and other mammals, but that these are not the systems that are responsible for conscious feelings we experience. Um, so they occur, some, so basically there are different brain systems for, for survival, which looks like it may involve feelings and, and, and feelings. And, and I want to get through this through a series of steps because it takes okay. you a whole book to get there too. Yeah. Could I just tell you what, what happened that, that made me go down this road? Well, I, th I think that's what I was just going to ask. Okay. Why don't you give me your own history about yeah. split brains? With, I, oh, that? I okay. Oh, maybe that's not it. Okay, no, the, why don't the, you well, start? I, we'll come to split brain, okay. but I this, while we're on this topic okay, of sure. evolution. So, um, you know, I'd been studying the amygdala and how it detects and responds to danger and how it learns through Pavlovian conditioning that, you know, some neutral stimulus becomes aversive uh, by this conditioning process. So we worked out that the amygdala was involved and all the circuits in the amygdala, all the gory details. And the next step was then to ask, what are the molecules and genes that underlie that? Sure. So how do you, you know- I what, like reductionism. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, so how, how do you figure that out? Well, you know, people like Eric Kandel had figured this out in aplesia, you know, invertebrates and, and flies and, and other organisms like that. Um, and so, and they were studying Pavlovian conditioning as well. So this was, you know, we could ask, well, maybe those genes and molecules that they discovered are the same as in rats. And sure enough, those were great clues. So we just used what they had figured out because it would be much harder to figure it out from scratch in a, a mammalian brain. So we did it. And, you know, a lot of people did this in other parts of the brain too, following those clues. So, and, you know, I just did it and didn't think too much about it. But at some point you say, well, where did that, how did that happen? How did the, you know, flies and, and rats get the same genes and molecules? So you got to go to the common ancestor of those things which was a flatworm living about 630 million years ago. And so this guy, Seth Grant, who had been working in Eric Kendall's lab, uh, now had set up his own lab at, uh, at Cambridge, uh, where I was doing a sabbatical in 2009, and we became friendly and talking a lot about this, you know, kind of introduced me to the idea that um, certain things that are important in memory, uh, in particular, something called the N-methyldiaspartate or NMDA receptor, which is the main plasticity molecule that you know allows all these conditioning things to happen. So Seth was tracing the, the evolutionary history of, of these molecules and finding components of it in this bilateral ancient 630 million year old uh, flatworm, but also in its ancestor, which was a jellyfish-like organism, and its ancestor, which was a sponge-like organism, and in its ancestor, which was a protozoan. So why do protozoa who, you know, don't have a nervous system have NMDA receptor components that are used in plasticity in nervous systems? So, well, that means that, you know, maybe they're using them because they can learn and they can be, they can be conditioned and all of that stuff. But the, the intriguing thing was that we could follow all this. And once you get to back to uh, protozoa, you start to say, well, what about bacteria? And certainly there's a lot of evidence that they behave, they approach and avoid useful and harmful things. Um, there's some evidence, not like strong evidence, but there's com fairly compelling evidence, at least in mathematical models, but also some behavioral evidence that they learn. So all of this stuff takes you to, you know, for like 3.8 billion years ago in the beginning of life, when the first organism that uh, survived had to do five things, detect danger, incorporate nutrients, balance fluids and ions, thermoregulate, reproduce. 
Now, if you're studying psychology and animal behavior, those are the things you study. And so when a rat is, you know, freezing in the face of danger, you call that fear. When it's like working to get food, you call that hunger. When it's copulating, you call that sexual pleasure, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we project, we do the Darwin thing and project our mental states onto those animals. But those states, those activities that we're talking about go back to the beginning of life. They have nothing to do with psychology. They're about staying alive. And that's why, you know, I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, that's life rather than psychology, yeah. although I guess, yeah, sometimes those are the same. But you hit one point, and I want to ask you the details, because again, m maybe I missed it in the book, but I want to know the, f the experiments that led. So, so Kendall discovers, you know, a molecular basis for certain yeah. things and certain things. And so the, the set of experiments that then convince people that this is, is relevant for many other, for everything from all the way up to animals, is to do biochemical tests? Was it chemistry then at that time that you were doing? Or, or, or... Well, no. So we, let's say, um, you know, at this time in the 90s, this was the, was the age of the knockout mouse uh, genetics thing. Yeah. And I never got hooked on that because those were, at the time, were uh, body-wide manipulation. So you'd knock a gene out, and you could take that molecule out, but you take it out in the whole body, so it was kind of messy. But the alternative was you could, um, uh, let's say you had something like uh, um, 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 an enzyme like uh, protein kinase A or MAP kinase. These are things that Kandel discovered were important in the triggering of protein synthesis, and protein synthesis is important in the stabilization of synapses, and that's how memories get stored. So um, there were... Uh, you know, chemicals you could use and inject into the amygdala that would block PKA, protein kinase A, or MAP kinase, uh, after an animal had learned something. And the question was, would the animal not be able to form a memory of that? And the answer is yes, they can't form a memory. How do you know? Well, the, you condition them with a tone and a shock. And um, the, uh, if you test the animal immediately after conditioning, they show the memory. If you, in, uh, after doing that, if you inject a protein synthesis inhibitor or MAP kinase inhibitor into the amygdala where the learning is taking place, then that short-term memory that you just observed does not get converted into a long-term memory because that requires protein synthesis. So you can either block protein synthesis or you can block some of the enzymes that trigger protein synthesis. But the point is that the memory doesn't get formed. And you know it doesn't get formed because you do the same chalk and, 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 it doesn't show and sound that. and it doesn't. Whereas if you don't put, I just want to make it clear yeah. to the listeners, if you don't put that blocker, then you perform the test later on and they and they anticipate that. Right. And I also have learned from listening to you that, uh, in a variety of contexts that the shocks are very mild. People just... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you only have to do it one time. That's yeah. the beauty of this kind of conditioning procedure. It's really very naturalistic. So the you give a rat a tone paired with a shock, you do it one time, and then the rat has a basically a lifelong memory of that. Um, it's like, you know, it's what happens to us. If we have something kind of dangerous that happens to us, that's, it gets stored for a long time. Good, because I want, I want to, you know, get at the, in my opinion, the science, and science is empirical. I want to try and understand why I should believe logical arguments that you're going to present or anyone else okay. might somehow, and because they're all eminently plausible and logical, but right. I want to know. And, well, let uh, me just say yeah. one more thing about the conditioning procedure. So mm -hmm. the, the tone is simulating like 
the sound of crackling leaves uh, that a rat might hear before a cat pounces on it. Mm. And then the, the shock is simulating the wound that the cat makes in the rat when he attacks. So oh. it's kind of a naturalistic learning about danger. Okay. It's not just like, you know, this weird, why are you giving a rat a tone and a shock? There's a reason for it. Oh, that's interesting too. I didn't know that. That's great. So you can do that to rats. Yeah. How can you, in terms of looking for memories, how primitive an organism can you do these tests on and how do you do them? Pick your organism. Okay, you. flatworm. <laughs> uh, well, so certainly worms. I don't know what's been, well, flatworm, yeah, planaria, definitely. How do we do memory in that? <laughs> uh, so they can be trained uh, to, you know, approach something, you know, it's like a little maze, for example, and they can approach the food. And if uh, if they get a shock or while they're approaching the food, then they they don't do it or they can be made sick or something, you know. So they're all just the standard kinds of behavioral. So, of course, one can imagine if they get a shock, they avoid things. And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that even with bact- this amazing experience with bacteria that I kind of let you talk about. But do they have long-term memory? Will they avoid it later on? Right. So this has been done, for example, in um, C. elegans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, Corey Bargman at, at Rockefeller has done this work. Um, and, you know, it's been done in flies, worms, jellyfish. So they all have memory. Yeah, yeah. Protozoa have memory. <laughs> protozoa, protozoa have memory too? Yeah. Plants? Plants, yeah. I mean, you know, plants will... Uh, follow the trajectory of minerals as they yeah. s- extend their roots down. And um, they, you know, will, uh, well, we know that, for example, when the sunflower moves during the day, it can store information about, you know, conditions and, and movements. And Has anyone done an experiment? I, this is just occurred to me with plants where, where they're following the minerals. Yeah. And then you change the soil. Will they go where the minerals were? Will they remember? Uh, or, well, or, that's or, a good experiment. I don't you, know. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not really a My expert bet is on that just behavior. some biochemical thing where there's no memory. They yeah, just yeah. happen to follow biochemically along a certain trail because there's that. But it'd be interesting to try it. Yeah. Well, look, uh, one has now learned that there's many things that we share all the way back to bacteria. And then the key point of is that there's some things we don't share. And therefore, we shouldn't assume that that just because we share some things that we share everything. I right. think that's, but but you put it poignantly in a number of ways. Here's one. Consciousness, though useful in humans in ways that we will be discussed later, this is early on in your book, is often a passive observer of behavior rather than an active controller of it, especially with regard to survival mechanisms that originated billions of years ago. That, as I will late argue later, research uh, suggests that the approach and withdrawal and other survival behaviors in humans are mediated by different brain circuits than those result in fear, pleasure, disappointment, and so on. And I think we've gotten the first part because you talk about those circuits. So the circuits that mediate survival and, and approach and withdrawal behavior are the ones that go all the way back. But, yeah. but so like the amygdala the, is the, yeah, you know, yeah, the manifestation yeah. of bacterial survival. Okay, but but the but the but the circuits that result in the, in emotions, fear, right. pleasure, disappointment, they're different in our brain and right. therefore they don't have the same evolutionary ba- right. background. Okay, but, but that's but the reason we confuse them is because when we're afraid, we're usually running away. Yeah, sure, exactly. The key thing is not saying that correlation right. is is causation. And that's and, a sin that a lot of people in my field have made, I think. Well, I think all science, it's very easy sin for everyone to make. It's very easy to do. And I'm accused, I accuse myself of it. But we'll get to the profane, (laughs) but first I want to get to the sacred. Uh, When I I read all of these recent developments, it seemed to me that those two statements of yours, 
basically are the same statement as the philosopher Hume made when he said, reason is the slave of passion. And in fact, your split brain work is when, it, when, I, when I read that, I thought reason is the slave of passion in the sense that we assign rational or, fe- right. or emo- you know, that, that basically what's governing us is things that we don't think our rational mind is telling us about the right. two are, are much more separated than we did before, which is why I want you to. I now want you to talk about the the, your, the work brain. you did with Gazzaniga early okay. on. Um, that is so right. remarkable to me, at least. Well, first of all, split brain is a surgery that is done to help people who have uncontrollable epilepsy that can't be helped in, in any other way, and so it's it's not something that's done that often. Uh, it was done a lot in the 60s and a few of those patients out there. In the 70s, it was done at Dartmouth. Um, and occasionally there are some that are being done, but it's not it's not that common. But, and it, it seems to help, but um, I'm not qualified really to, mm-hmm. to address that issue. So anyway, so in the Caltech uh, studies, the, you know, they worked out, you know, you put a stimulus into the left visual field that goes to the right hemisphere. Uh, put a stimulus in the right visual field that goes to the left hemisphere. So the brain is split, so information going to the right hemisphere stays there. So left visual field, right hemisphere, the information is here. You say, what What did you see? And now you're talking to the left hemisphere, and the left hemisphere says, I didn't see anything. But if you have the guy or gal reach into a bag and with the uh, right hand connected to the left hemisphere, they can't find it. But left hand connected to the right hemisphere, they can pull out the banana if there was a picture of a banana. So information in the right hemisphere is, it gets stored there, it gets represented there, but it can't cross over to the left where you can talk about it. So that that was like, uh, what happens when you take the brain apart? That's what they did in, in the 60s. Um, and in the 70s, Mike had gone to Stony Brook and a new group of patients were being operated on at Dartmouth. And so he started testing those. And that's right around the time I arrived in his lab. And I wanted to do, uh, you know, animal studies. Uh, he was doing some monkey work, so I'm about to do the monkey research. He said, no, I want you to work on the humans. Oh, <laughs> human, I just came here to do, you know, real science. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, give it a try. So, okay. So, I gave it a try, and it was, like, fascinating. And, you know, so, um, and the way Mike put it is that, you know, we spent X years asking the patient, what did you see? And then in the studies that he and I did, we said, Why'd you do that? You know, that was the, the next question. Yeah, that that I'm surprised <laughs> took so long. But yeah, I don't know. Why, you see, I don't know why it took us so long. But all, the way it happened was we were up in the. We had a little trailer that we would pull behind a big orange van that uh, Ford van that Mike had. It was a little camper trailer, and we'd set up a lab in there, um, testing you know, like a table like this size and a screen that you could flash pictures left and right uh, onto, and you know places where the the hands could be hidden so they couldn't see them, so you could move objects around and so forth. So in the key experiment, we would make the right hemisphere cause the person to do something like stand up. So the guy would stand up and say, oh, I needed to stretch. When you say, why'd you do that? They'd say, oh, I needed to stretch. Or, But but in, in reality, you told them to stretch. Yeah, it was like yeah, we yeah. made him do these things, and but the left hemisphere didn't know that. So if it was like scratch. So why'd you do that? I had an itch. Or laugh and say, <laughs> why'd you laugh? You guys are funny. And these were not like, well, let me think about it. It was like automatic. So the idea that, that we kind of came up with is that 
Well, maybe this is what happens all the time in life. We generate behaviors that uh, we aren't consciously aware of, but you know, our conscious mind lives and thrives on free will, the idea of free will. So if we're not in control of our body, well, what the hell is going on? So we, so we make up this story. We have this natural mechanism for generating a narrative about why we do what we do. Yeah, it was just fascinating to me that people would just immediately, when, when you told them to do something and then they had no, the right, other side of the brain didn't know why, right. the one that controlled what they were saying, would just come up naturally with a totally false explanation. Yeah. It, it really is sobering to think that that's why we explain most of our behavior. And that's what I mean by the, right. the minute I read that, I thought reason <laughs> is a slave of passion. Well, we, we should, um, you know, we have to give credit where credit is due. So Mike was good friends with the social psychologist Leon Festinger. And Festinger had the theory of cognitive dissonance, where, you know, if you do things that are that don't jive, then you, like, it creates dissonance, and so you have to explain it. So we were just applying cognitive dissonance to the split-brain behavior. <laughs> yeah, but it really suggests that, that we definitely, yeah, it was very, that's a clear, for me, that's a clear experiment that tells me something, and I, I love that kind I, of stuff. I wouldn't call it an experiment, actually. It's like, it, these were, like, demonstrations. An observation. An observation. observation. More like an astrophysics, yeah. an observation. Right. You're not tweaking the knobs, but you're observing what happens. And it was one patient and, like, you know, a couple of, like, little... Test we did. <laughs> yeah, we. I guess you don't. Well, you did it presumably on more than one, right? Yeah, I hope. I mean, because yes. it would be bad. If it, <laughs> well, you, they, you know, but each patient was so different that there was one patient we could really do all this cool stuff on. The reason is because he could read in his right hemisphere, and that's how we could get him to do all these things. Oh, I but see. most of the others couldn't. But because he could read, we also had the opportunity to, for the first time, really ask: Is there a conscious mind over in the right hemisphere? So we would, you know put the question over there, who are you And in the right hemisphere? Because you can't talk to it, this side, this side. And so we put out Scrabble letters, and the left hand, you know, picked up P-A-U-L, Paul. He spelled his name. And then we said, you know, asked him, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And uh, I forget exactly how we phrased it, but uh, so the left hemisphere, when it would talk to us, would say he wanted to be um, a draftsman architect. Uh, but the right hemisphere spelled out race car driver. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, that little demonstration we, we claimed uh, showed that he had a, a se sense of self and self-identity because he knew his name, and he had an aspiration for the future, the two things that are important in human behavior. But a different aspiration for the future uh, yeah, in different, different hemispheres. Cool <laughs> wow. But how, you know, how would I go to the... Uh, to the to the mat with that? Yeah, no. Put but, my life in no. It's but it's an, intriguing. It's, yeah. yeah, it was an intriguing thing that um, makes sense, and we used it to like you know run with and try to explain. Well, what I like stuff. about it, and one of the reasons I wanted to focus on it, is that so many times I'm suspicious when well, you've heard, I don't know whether I learned heard it from you first, but the problem of studying brains with brains is very hard because we can study stars right. with our, us, exactly. and we're not, and so. I'm suspicious when people tell me they talk to patients and they, you know, because you never know quite what you're really learning. Yeah. And, the, and it's nice to know that there, there's some clear evidence in this case because of that split right. it's, where uh, you can definitively say one thing or another. Yeah. But one thing I want to just go to, uh, uh, totally aside for okay. a second, because I, I think I heard you say this somewhere because uh, I was listening to you as well, reading you, that 
people imagine they have free will because uh, they're doing things, but in fact, there are other reasons for why they're doing it. But then I was surprised to hear you say you, you, you quote unquote, believe in free will. Uh, well, I don't disbelieve I, in it, you know. So. I, why, why, why do you think that there's free will? Because I, I see no um, evidence of it whatsoever in any, <laughs> in any part of science. I don't I think see. there's any evidence. It's just kind of like uh, you I'm, want hanging, I'm hanging on to that uh, oh, okay. as a core Belief at a, it's okay, not, well, that can be a, that can be your next book. Why that's wrong? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I should say, in terms of the patients, um, my my um, experience ended there. But Mike continued to study other patients and confirmed all this in in others. So it wasn't yeah. just like as casual as I yeah, just yeah, said. no, no, sure. But it's nice to to see them. We're heading towards. You've already said the conclusion in subsets, <laughs> and I want to take steps now to get there. We okay. talked about the one evolutionary aspect of the behavior. There's something else that for me as a non-expert was sort of useful. And that's this difference between Pavlovian and instrumental conditioning in terms of understanding different ways the brain works. So would you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think one of the problems that uh, people don't really understand is that there are lots of different kinds of behavior. And every time you ask the brain to do something slightly different, different systems and circuits in the brain are involved. I think this is a big problem in in terms of like treatment of of uh, you know mental and behavioral disorders. I don't know if we want to go into that, but let's take a let's create a kind of um, classification of behavior. So we've got reflexes that's very primitive that uh, every animal has. The next step up would be innate behaviors or what um, you know Conrad Lorenz and the ethologist called fixed action patterns, and the next step is a habit. So a habit is like a rigid fixed action pattern, which is repeated the same way every time, more or less, except it's been learned. A habit has been learned. Um, but it is learned without the consequences mattering. So, for example, let's say you've got a rat that's pressing a bar to get food, and um, it, if you repeat that behavior enough, it uh, will continue to press the bar without getting food because you know the expectation at some point it might come. But you don't know when you're watching that, just from the behavior alone, whether the behavior is controlled by a habit circuit, in which case, if you eliminate the food, it uh, will just keep going, or if it's controlled by an instrumental goal-directed kind of circuit, where if you eliminate the food, at some, time, at some point you'll stop pressing because the food is not coming. On the outside, and this is the work of uh, Anthony Dixon at Cambridge and uh, Bernard Baleen in, in Australia, showing that you can't tell by observing behavior which of those is at play, a habit or a goal-directed behavior. You have to have tests that, that dissect all that. And that is a, a key point about behavior. It, what it looks like is not necessarily what it is. So above instrumental behavior, or what we can call deliberative responses, the Responses controlled by cognitive deliberation, which can be either unconscious or conscious. And so that gives you a kind of range of the types of behaviors. And each of those depends on different circuits. And sometimes they look very similar from the outside, uh, especially, you know, conscious behavior can look like instrumental goal-directed behavior. It can look like unconscious behavior. So we have to, like, you can't just assume it, you have to test it. That's a very important observable that you try and sort of distinguish between them. But the the other one, and we started to talk about it, that seems to me in building this picture you have is the key role of memory and and schema. 
which, so, it, which, so if you could talk about that as well. I want to build up the parts. Okay. So a schema is simply kind of what you might call a mental model. Uh, it's a kind of um, body of knowledge about something. And you could have a schema about animals or about danger. And okay. so it's kind of a, when you're in a situation, let's say, of danger, um, what happens is, you know, let's say a snake at your feet. So that goes into your brain and that will cause your amygdala to make you freeze very quickly. But at the same time, the threat is also going to cortical areas and to memory-related areas and triggering uh, triggering memories. So it'll trigger semantic memory, so you know that snakes are dangerous. Um, and you um, you know that some snakes are dangerous and some are not. You, know, all kind, you have all kinds of things you've learned about danger throughout your life. You know how you expect people to act in danger, and are you acting that way? If not, are you disappointed in the way you're acting? And there's all kinds of memories that can be retrieved, uh, but the most important ones are those about you, called episodic memories, experiences you've had in, in your life about danger. But the point is that all of these things um, are stored in your, in your brain over the experiences you've had throughout your life. But in the moment, the snake is activating a subset of those memories, which can be the moment we'll call the momentarily active schema. Um, and that kind of forms a, a template or a body of knowledge um, that can be read out in a narrative that now plays out in your conscious mind as fear. Well, let's take it again, the, the, the physiological and maybe biochemical basis of this. One aspect of, of all of this is, is uh, synaptic plasticity okay. in the brain. But in fact, somewhere you say the synaptic plasticity is the basis for learning. Yeah. But but one thing that's Part sort of, of a little basis. a little confusing is you also argue that things as far back as protozoa and uh, I mean things they that uh, uh, th that okay. they can learn too. Yeah, right, right. And so if it's a requirement of learning, how can they learn if they don't have it? So okay, let, that's a good point. So let's let's start low and go high. As we go from low to high, what we see is that um, you know. Bacteria and humans do the same five things that I mentioned, detect danger, incorporate nutrients, balance fluids, thermoregulate, reproduce. But all the way between bacteria and humans, every organism does that in a different way because it has a different bowel plan or body type uh, that's evolved in its particular niche. And that body determines how it will respond and how complex its responses can be. So... Before nervous systems, organisms have cellular membrane responses to detect good and useful things and move towards and away and so forth. Um, but they don't have, you know, arms and legs to move them. So they, bacteria, some bacteria have flagella, and they use those to kind of propel, and they randomly move through the, the environment with that propelling. Um, and if they encounter something useful, they keep going. If they found something, encounter something harmful, they flip away and go off into a different direction. So uh, their ability to move around in their world is very limited, and their ability to, to choose what to do is limited. Uh, it's all driven by their membrane. But the next level up would be um, a, a protozoa, which has 
you know, more sophisticated kind of um, body because of its um, its larger, for example. Uh, bacteria have a, a mass problem that they couldn't get bigger, and it has to do with energy dynamics mm. and so forth. Protozoa have uh, uh, mitochondria, and this can support Oxygen slightly... Oxygen suddenly increases yeah, the larger by 30, body size. 36 times the amount of energy you can... And then, produce. but protozoa still, this is still one single cell. Now, a multicellular organism, let's take a simple one, which would be like, um, you know, just the beginning of a, a few cells that are kind of integrated together through a process called uh, alignment of fitness over the uh, uh, course of development, where the genes, you, you start with a single cell, but the genetic program allows that cell to uh, divide and, and reproduce uh, in a kind of, um, uh, in a way that is tied to a program about what kind of body is gonna be built. So you get multiple cells coming out of that single cell. And that allows a true organism because before that you could have cells that are clinging together, but they're not starting from a single cell. So Major their genome is different. Mm -hmm. But every cell in the multicellular organism has the same genome. And that's why it can live together and be uh, physiologically compatible and have a big body that's physiological compatible because they all start with the, the same genome. Okay, but you, you're, this is a description of how, uh, indeed, how the importance of going from single cells to multi cells, and and then to a to an a, to a, a true multicellular being that, and then oxygen yeah. intake, and there's a long history, and it's it's fascinating. But I guess I, I wanted to just say, if but you, what what I got in terms of your answer to my original question is that learning. <laughs> okay, is that learning. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. So yeah. So the body type you have determines what you can do. So um, animals have nervous systems. So why do they have nervous systems? Well, the action potential, which is important in a nervous system, uh, was used in a single cell as a way to, to um, repair the cell membrane. And so then that became useful as a means of communication within the cell so that when cells, um, when you have a multicellular organism that is capable of um, having specialized cells, you have a cell that's trying to communicate with uh, another cell and the body is getting bigger because you have many more cells. And like in a tree, it takes forever for the chemical transmission from the roots to go to the leaves and all that. But if you had some way of speeding up that chemical transmission from cell to cell, those cells could be separated in distance. And so you could have a bigger body with lots of parts. And so you could behave in different ways. So the point is that synaptic plasticity in animals with nervous systems is the basis of learning, but that's based on principles that were figured out for learning in bacteria and protozoa as well. And the key point is that, that the nervous system it sort of grew out of physical requirements in some sense too, that as far as I can tell, one that, uh, Electricity travels, electronics travels better than chemistry right. in some sense, right. although chemistry the basis of it. Is, but chemical interactions are less uh, uh, fast than, than, than sending an electronic right. impulse. So it's useful if you're larger for systems to communicate that way. And the other is bilateral symmetry. Well, so on, in terms of the electrical thing, though, I mean, it, it's important to point out that um, the, the standard way that cells communicate is by releasing a chemical and that chemical diffuses to the next cell. And so in order to have communication across long distances, they had to have some other means. And as you said, electricity that's generated in the cell body uh, can travel down you know, some appendage and, uh, that, that's connected to the cell body and then be allowing the release of the chemical a long distance away. So that's how 
communication takes place in a large body. Now, bilateral symmetry is something that happened. Um, so first, the first animals were sponges, and then um, they gave way to jellyfish. Now, the interesting question is, how did a sponge become a jellyfish? Well, you can't understand that by thinking of the adult organism. You've got to understand it from the point of view of the larva. So the sponge larva and the jellyfish larva look very similar. So it was a small change to go from uh, a jellyfish larva to a sponge larva. And it's all about the developmental program in those two organisms that then unfold is expressed as. So jellyfish are uh, radial in shape. Sponges are, have no particular shape. Jellyfish are radial. They have a, a top and a bottom, but not a, a front and a back or a left and a right. But flatworms have a left, right, front, back, and top, bottom. So that was the first kind of bilaterally symmetric organism. And they also had a tiny little brain, it's believed, mm -hmm. a few collection of neurons in the head. And that was important because the head is where the eyes are, the head is where the mouth is. And so you can have the, the forward uh, direction of locomotion can be guided by the senses and the food can be taken in there. Yeah, that, that's what amazed me. It's just a simple physical fact that right. it never occurred to me before that when you have bilateral symmetry that way, there's a forward motion. Right. And it's reasonable for to have a system that controls forward motion right. in the front. Right. And that seems to be to be so remarkable. And, and the true. other good part is that the tail is the the most uh, d dispensable part, right? So the back, if the you know if a predator comes up from behind and bites off the back, yeah. you can still keep going because yeah. the head and stuff is in the front. Yeah. Right, so it's, it's, it's well, as I always say, everything's physics. Uh, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff when I started. <laughs> yeah, writing. I had yeah, to learn. I wrote yeah. most of the book as a journalist rather than a scientist. Well, that's a, that's a good way to do it because then you can explain it to others. I think, and and but but it's interesting that the physical requirements. Well, it's very satisfying for me. Yeah. The physical requirements drive many things and and things you might not have thought of. Uh, just the simple fact that having a brain in the head is you'll like this one then. So. You know, we think of approach and avoidance as psychological behaviors, but they are just the two things that can happen between two physical objects. They need to be closer or further away. You say that somewhere, that approach and avoidance is basically just physics. It's physics. Okay, well, so I wanted to walk through that a little bit, but then I want, uh, before we go to cognition, and 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 then we'll then I have some general questions okay. for the listeners who are feeling overwhelmed already, but I want you to work <laughs> through the... So we have those systems, but now we have a brain. So... All brains, all vertebrate brains consist of three parts, a hindbrain, midbrain, and a forebrain. The forebrain is the part we care about most because that's where all the cognition and, and a lot of our learning and so forth take place. Um, the midbrain is more kind of uh, reflexive and, and instinctual, and the hindbrain is more necessary for, for uh, life. So the mammalian brain, uh, the brain that all mammals have, has expanded quite a bit. Um, the first mammals were primitive ground-dwelling organisms. Um, they depended on smell a lot. Um, with primates, the um, the involvement of vision became more important and uh, um, new learning capacities came in. And in humans, uh, we got in the further changes. But all of these things are happening in the forebrain itself, not in the of the two parts. I mean, you know, there are advances in each part, but the big changes in mammals was in the forebrain, and the big change in primates was also in parts of the forebrain. So when we talk about 
cognition, we're usually talking about the cerebral cortex. That's the, the wrinkled part you see when you look at a picture of the brain. Um, and underneath that, because it's below the cortex, it's called the subcortical uh, area. And when you hear things of, uh, like the limbic system, something I'm not a big fan of, but the limbic system is part of the forebrain. Uh, and it's uh, it has both subcortical and cortical parts. So the the cortical parts of this limbic brain would be on the middle side. Imagine a hot dog bun. We pull it apart, and the white, untoasted part in the middle is where the uh, these old cortical areas are. On the outside, the brown toasty part is where the newer cortical areas are. And in the in the front is where the prefrontal cortex is, which we talked about earlier. And we have the you know the lateral prefrontal cortex, which is um, where we talked about having primate specializations. And the frontal pole is also in the the lateral prefrontal cortex. In the middle part, in the medial prefrontal cortex, um, we have these older cortical areas that uh, are present in all mammals, but uh, are particularly important in non-primate mammals because that's all they have. Okay, good. Now that sets the basis for the realization that behavior does not necessarily represent cognition and and emotion. That, that, that those are really governed by different circuits in principle. And maybe because we've got become technical, I won't go into uh, too much about that, but I'd like you to at least talk about how one focused on the amygdala, which is, and, and what that governs and and how one knows that, or at least now knows, and by know, I mean experimentally know, that that doesn't necessarily relate to emotions. All right, so first of all, I didn't invent the amygdala. I've worked on it a long time, but people associate me with it a lot. Mm -hmm. But people were, researchers were studying the amygdala long before I I got involved in all this. Um, What I did was help treat it as not a lump in the brain, but as a circuit, part of a circuit where danger comes in is detected and a set of responses that allow you to cope with that danger or orchestrate it. And um, the way I was able to do that is by, you know, I was following the logic I'd learned through the split brain research where you, know, you put a stimulus into this part of the visual field, it goes to this part of the brain and it crosses over, but if the section, if the parts are cut up uh, in the split brain, then they can't travel. So I, I came to think of the brain as like a big wiring diagram. So I, when I decided I was going to go from studying humans to studying rats because I wanted to figure out how emotion systems might be generating some of these non-conscious behaviors that we then generate an explanation of. So I said, well, I, there's no technique for studying this in the human brain. I need to turn to animal studies. So I turned to rats and... Um, I followed this this logic of you, know, you take a stimulus and put it in, and goes into the ear and then comes out the muscle. So how to, it's a matter of connecting the dots in the brain. How does the ear get connected to the muscle? Uh, and the amygdala was you know a major part of that connectivity. Um, it, you know, it was a the process was one of um, starting with a tone that's been paired with the shock, it goes in the ear. And the question was, did it have to go all the way to the auditory cortex, which is the highest level of the auditory system? Or was some other, you know, did, it, did the stimulus exit the auditory pathway somewhere lower? 
And so rather than starting at the ear and making the animals deaf, which they wouldn't hear anything, so we started at the top auditory cortex. Lesion the auditory cortex on both sides of the brain. The animals could still learn to freeze to a tone that had been paired with shock. But if we lesion the next station down, the auditory thalamus, the animals no longer uh, could learn. So then we trace the connections of the thalamus, and of course it went to the auditory cortex. How do you trace that? You inject a chemical, and this is what I'd learned in that anatomist lab at Stony Brook. Mm -hmm. You inject a chemical and it goes, uh, it pick, gets picked up by the cell bodies and gets transported down the axons, and you can then slice the brain later and, and see where the, the label Good. is, you know, do enzymatic reactions and stuff. So the tracer went to the cortex, auditory cortex, but it also went to the amygdala. So, uh -huh, okay, so auditory cortex wasn't necessary, maybe the amygdala was. So indeed, we, we went in, we lesioned the amygdala, and the animals still couldn't, you know, they couldn't learn. Um, and so that allowed it, the tracer didn't go to the entire amygdala, it only went to a small part. So we said, well, maybe if we just lesion that tiny part, then we'd get the same effect as a big lesion, and that was the case. So we then asked, how does that little part connect with other parts? And that took us from the input part of the amygdala to the output part, and the output part inject that, and it goes to lots of other parts, and so we lesion each of those. So it was a matter of just like, you know, lesion, injection, lesion, injection, and we, through that systematic approach, we're able to get from the ear to the muscle. That tells you how the behavior works, not the cognition. Right. And so it tells you, you put this shock in and then and, and mm -hmm. you freeze. Right. So that's good. That's a mechanistic right. thing. But it doesn't tell you anything about cognition. Right. Or at least at least to me, it's right. not obvious. No, no, no. So that's that's important. But now one one's focused that that's somehow a pathway that produces a behavior that you might associate with fear. Which and that's what everybody called it, including yeah. me. We tell you, well, the, the amygdala is controlling fear responses. Um, but I'd always also said that the conscious experience of fear is likely to be a cortical process because of my understanding of consciousness from the split brain work. So even though I was talking about conscious fear, I wasn't studying it. I was all just kind of hung up and studying all this kind of basic biology. And yeah, it wasn't just like freezing behavior. We were also studying blood pressure and heart rate and stress hormones that are being released and so forth. And so... Um, this allowed us to then also do studies in humans. So I teamed up with uh, Elizabeth Phelps, who uh, was a colleague here, now she's at Harvard. But for, for 20 or 30 years, we did studies together. She would do um, Pavlovian conditioning studies in humans and was able to show that the human amygdala is also involved in uh, Pavlovian conditioning. Well, again, I mean, I, I just want to interrupt yeah. each stage to say, how do we know that? Yeah. Because you don't, you know, she didn't take the human brains no, out later in section. But there are people who have amygdala damage because of epilepsy and so forth, ah. and they can't be conditioned. Um, and she put people into imaging machines and showed that when uh, the, the, she used visual stimuli, when Good. the visual stimulus that had been paired with a shock was presented, the amygdala would be activated. Now, the important part was that she and others uh, showed that those stimuli could also be presented subliminally. That means you don't know the stimulus is there. It's presented in a very brief flash, like 20 milliseconds. You can then follow that with a, a visual white noise, a big massive pattern of stuff that you know blocks the, helps prevent it from entering consciousness. And so the person will, let's say you present a picture of a snake, so, or it's been a, or a 
it's an orange square that had been paired with a shock, same thing, snake or orange square mm -hmm. paired with a shock. The amygdala is activated. Um, and you say, what did you see? And the person says, I didn't see anything. And you say, um, well, do you feel anything? No, I don't feel anything. Uh, but the amygdala is activated, the heart is beating faster, the palms are sweating. So if we don't need fear to explain why a human is responding that way, why would we be talking about fear in a rat? Okay, of course, the, what I understand is some people question that and say, ah, but it was really subconscious. Yeah, you right, saw right. it for a little, right. but maybe it was conscious because maybe they just don't know, they, you know but it was really conscious right. because it was so fast. And that leads me to this next thing, which is really the basis of a lot of what you talk about, which you call hot or higher order theory. Right. I don't know whether I, as a theorist, as a physicist, I would call it theory, but that's uh, not okay. but, 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 um, but the whole idea, well, no, the whole idea, which again seems eminently plausible, is that the brain as a processor is taking these inputs, you know, doing some something, processing what you might call cognition, I would as a Mojo. naive person, <laughs> and then feeding it back and doing something else. So somehow there's all this stuff happening in some part of the brain that is producing all sorts of stuff, like maybe fear, emotion, love, thinking, physics, who right. knows, and it's feeding back down. and But you say that that's controversial, and maybe for the same reasons. So maybe you could take us through higher order theory. Okay. Obviously, I gave the baby version. Okay. Research on consciousness um, has been going on a long time, but it really kind of took off in the 1990s. Um, and this was due to Francis Crick getting involved mm -hmm. and proclaiming that, you know, we should study visual consciousness because we know so much about the visual system. The fact is that, you know, all of the split brain work was done on visual processing and there'd been a lot of work on consciousness. So Crick didn't invent uh, consciousness yeah. for us, but he did like mobilize a lot of people to get involved, um, Crick and, and Christoph Koch. So um, a lot of the work that's been done has involved visual perception. And so many of the theories and arguments that, that are around today are based on visual perception. So for example, if you show a person a um, picture of an apple that they can give a report on and say, well, that's an apple, uh, you activate visual cortex, but also prefrontal cortex. If the uh, stimulus is presented in a way that the person can't give a report, but through imaging, you can show that the brain is still active. What you see is that only the visual cortex is active. So in the absence of the ability to say what is on your mind, what you saw, uh, the prefrontal cortex is not active. So that has led to the idea that you know, maybe prefrontal cortex is important in taking a visual perception and turning that into you know, a reportable conscious experience. Now, um, some people say, well, that's just uh, what's called access consciousness. It's really all about visual cortex and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and those arguments are fine. Uh, and they've been going on between philosophers and scientists for a long time. But, you know, that's not going to explain what we really want to know about. You know, how do our, our mo how do we experience emotions and memories and all mm. the things that drive us and, you know, that we love and hate about life? Um, visual cortex activity alone is not going to explain yeah. that. So um, I'm a fan of, of what's called the higher order theory. This has been most popularly presented by uh, the philosopher David Rosenthal at City University here in, in New York. And he, uh, his idea is that visual uh, cortex information has to be re-represented 
in prefrontal cortex. And as a result of that, you can have a conscious experience of it. Now, his theory is that it allows you to be conscious of what's in visual cortex. An alternative view that, uh, that I prefer is that the prefrontal cortex is part of a system where the awareness is actually taking place rather than in the visual cortex. Um, and so for an emotion, I'm saying, well, the system, the brain systems involved, let's assume that the brain systems involved in making consciousness only evolved one time. And what it, the same system is involved, whether you're looking at an apple or you're experiencing fear or love or anything else. What's different is the information that that system is working with. And so if it's just an apple, you're working with visual cortex. If it's fear, you're working with the visual cortex, but also uh, the amygdala and the body signals that are coming back and all kinds of other things. So um, the, the basic idea then is that we have a, the, all of these stimuli that are present in a dangerous situation come into the brain. Um, the, the visual cortex is certainly activated. But you know, you're really, even if it's a picture of an apple, you really need more than visual cortex and prefrontal cortex. You need memory to know what it is. We don't have apples innately in our brain, so you need some memory in there as well. So the whole, like, it's just visual cortex and prefrontal doesn't play out anyway. You gotta have memory as a sidebar that's informing what, telling prefrontal cortex what that is. So um, in the case of emotion, in addition to having memory, you've got you know, all this amygdala stuff. Uh, but maybe that's not even necessary because one of the things we didn't talk about, people with amygdala damage can still report feeling fear. So for example, Liz Phelps had a patient and the patient was asked, um, you know, you know, you've gone through this conditioning experiment and uh, uh, you didn't respond very much. What do you make of that? And she said, well, I know I don't sweat. So she, uh, she didn't learn that in time, you know, people talk about sweating when they're afraid mm. or they've been scared about something. She doesn't sweat. So I said, I know that, but I've never noticed anything unusual about my fear. So what is fear? It's your awareness of something bad happening to you. And it can all be totally cognitive. If you don't have an amygdala to like make it juicy, you can still be afraid. Yeah, because that seemed a very compelling evidence, which again, it seemed to be obvious in retrospect that right. that fear is not in the amygdala. No, right? it's your awareness of that you're in danger. And so you, this goes back to autonoidic consciousness, you have to be part of that because if it's not going to bite you and harm you, then it's not something you're afraid of. Okay, this, the next, I want to sort of move now as we near the end to, to the more general questions, less technical in some okay. sense, that, but grander ones, the kind of thing that interests people and yeah. everyone, that, drive, drove, that drives everyone and presumably drives your research. But every time, it seemed to me, some claim is made about a part of the brain being uniquely responsible for something, right. there's always evidence that says, no, in fact, it's distributed. Yeah. And because of that, how will we ever know what happens? <laughs> well, you know, we, we, I think a lot of what we know, we know because we've simplified things in a way we can find out. So I think there's no doubt that a tone paired with shock or a visual stimulus paired with shock or a picture of a snake is going to go through the visual system or the auditory system, some sensory system. It's going to get to the amygdala and it's going to trigger a response, you know whether there's other branches and other things going on, probably, most likely, but that pathway is necessary. And 
seems sufficient, but maybe there are other things that can Yeah, but in. that's not the kind, but what I'm saying is that that's right. That, right. that we can know, that's right. science. Yeah. But what people care about is why do I love or yeah, how do right. I, and then, and then when people say, well, you know, maybe it's that pole there, yeah. but then, but then as there are, it doesn't look like it's just that right. because it's distributed over the whole cortex and at least, and maybe other parts. And so it, does it just remain a black box? Well, it, you know, we're kind of at the early phase of this stuff mm -hmm. and there, there hasn't been much interest in consciousness beyond vision. And that's what I hope has been part of my contribution to that field, because I'm, I'm really an outsider in the consciousness world. There are, there are whole societies that are created around this whole research topic, but it's all about vision. And so I've tried to give lectures there saying, well, let's think about you know emotions and memories and the other things that people care about. Um, and I think it's you know it's having some impact, and people are getting more interested in in this topic. Um, but so let's let's just talk about the frontal pole because that's something a lot of people haven't heard about, and it's kind of interesting. Um, it but, is interesting. The minute you hear there's something that's only in the human brain and nowhere else, so Boy, first it caught all, my attention. There, there, there's a, a a lateral frontal pole and a medial. So the the brown part of the hot dog bun, the white part of the hot dog bun. Apes have the 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 white part of the hot dog bun frontal pole inside the middle, but only humans have the lateral part. So it's a kind of expansion of, of the human prefrontal cortex. Now, what do we know about it? Well, it's a part of the brain that only gets high level, highly processed conceptual kinds of input. So things that have been integrated across sensory modalities, um, uh, it only, it gets a lot of, of, of this multimodal kind of input, but also it gets inputs from other prefrontal cortex areas that have also been getting these integrated things. So the frontal pole is kind of like at the top of the integration hierarchy. It's like the most conceptual kind of thing in the brain that we have. And there isn't a lot of research on it, but there's some studies uh, at this point showing, uh, this is work that uh, Steve Fleming at University College in London has done, that suggests that it's involved in what we might call subjective metacognition. That's So metacognition is cognition about cognition or thought about a thought. But subjective metacognition is um, a thought about you as part of that thought. It's about how you can change your mind as you're thinking about something. So is that you know the home run for saying the frontal pole is involved in the no, but it's like a it's an anchor. It's a starting point. And this you know this work just came out like a year or so ago. So we're just at the beginning of so this. I think but... it's really the beginning. And the frontal pole may turn out to be a red herring, but it's you know it's a good thing to look at it as a starting point because it's it seems so obvious that it could be. Well, yeah. And so there's an example of maybe, but but the, but because I keep hearing whenever there's a damage, you it seems to me every time I see that, someone makes a supposition and then says, oh, no, but that area is damaged, and you still are able to do it. So, and, and, exactly. And, and uh, so that's one, I mean, that's just an open question, and I, it's a well, question I, I how can, will I know? I'd like to address that, because we tend to um, sort of lump things together. And so let's say this idea of subjective metacognition. So, okay, the frontal pole is damaged in, in patient X, and the person can still have some kind of subjective metacognition. But that that's a term, subjective metacognition. It, it's just, it came out of a specific kind of experiment. 
but it may not be the kind of subjective metacognition that's required for an emotion. So we can't just, we are too quick to draw conclusions on the basis of a few words. buzzwords that uh. we label things with. And that is a big problem in science uh, in general. Now, it doesn't matter if a physicist calls something a quark or whatever mm -hmm. you guys call yeah, it, the cute exactly. things, you, you name things. But we have to be careful when we're talking about psychology, when we name things, because when we name things that come from our subjective experiences and... Uh, attach those names to parts of the brain, it's very hard to like unshackle those things. Yeah, that's why no. fear is so stuck in the amygdala, it's almost impossible to get it out. That's why physics is, I repeat, is easier than brain science <laughs> because brain studying brains, the yeah. terms mean something. You're absolutely right. physics, we can study how, how protons are built up. It doesn't matter what you call them and no one's gonna be confused okay. because mostly it's mathematics anyway. But but uh, but yeah, when you're studying the brain, these terms could are, can be very, well, are, are extremely influential. and. It, and then there's this other thing that intrigues me because I've sometimes been claimed to be disparaging about philosophy and various things I've written. And I've pointed out that, that in physics, and I'll get letters for this, but in physics, philosophy is largely irrelevant. It isn't irrelevant in brain science because here's an area where the questions, where, thing, where science is well-formulated with empirical evidence and, and conclusions, the, it's sort of gone, if you wish, beyond philosophy. Right. But, but when you don't know what the questions are right. and, and things are still very fluid, there's this interconnection between philosophers and, and scientists that's clear, that you clearly mentioned because you say philosopher X and scientists right. were thinking about these things. But I was intrigued when I thought about higher-order theory, quote-unquote, and then I look back at early parts of the book or, or earlier things I know about at William James or Helmholtz, who were really talking out of their various body parts. I mean, they were just, but, they were just speculating, right. and there was intelligent, logical speculation that those speculations, in some sense, are, are so similar to higher-order theory. And I just wonder, is calling higher-order theory giving it a kind of yeah. scientific... Uh, it premature that it, it maybe isn't that different than with. I'm just being a devil's advocate here, but I want yeah, to I hear think what you high have to... order. I, I'm not. I don't like the term, mm -hmm. um, but it it's uh, it came out of philosophy, and it's based on this assumption that you have a high order and a, a first order state, and yeah. that that's all that's important. Yeah. So I think it's not it's not a great terminology, but I think the message is important because the higher order representation is not itself conscious. In order to be conscious of of what's in that representation, you need another representation of yeah, it. Yeah, sure. But I guess what I'm trying to say, I didn't say it very well, is what they argued was plausible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What I'm reading from you is plausible. Right. Is it anything yet more than plausible? It's 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 more than what William James had because there was no data to go with yeah. it. But there's a lot of data that's coming up with imaging and you know being it's correlational, of course. But you can uh, there are new techniques, for example, TMS that you can uh, use to functionally inactivate uh, you know small areas of the brain and perhaps get some causal uh, significance. Uh, but I'm going to go back to the difference between physics and, and psychology again. Um, you know, the, I think there's no way folks that physics has relevance for, for physics, except as a, kind of a starting point for doing uh, your work. But in psychology, um, I think it, we've been too easy to, dis, too quick to dismiss folk psychology because we live our lives in folk psychological space. Sure. And so I, I agree that folk psychology has nothing to do with what the amygdala is doing. 
and other parts of, you know, more automatic parts of the brain. But in terms of consciousness, folk psychology is what it's all about. And so I think we need to un- come to the understanding that when we talk about fear, it, that word has meaning. And so when some of my colleagues want fear to stay in the amygdala because, you know, that is a useful way of thinking about disease. I don't think it is, but that they do, uh, that we have this kind of fear generator and so forth. Um, I think that's wrong because it gives you the feeling, the impression that the amygdala is the fear center because that's what that word means. Yeah. And it, so and, and our words are so powerful. For, yeah. The words are so, well, because the brain is the brain and yeah. it, that's why it's so com- complicated. And, you know, we've uh, hopefully addressed some of these issues. Okay. Let's, let's even go more meta okay. about things that I think we can all talk about without knowing anything, <laughs> at least some of us can. Um, well, one we could talk about, and it's relevant here, and we haven't mentioned the word language, uh-huh. although it's vitally important. Right. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Noam Chomsky okay. and, 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 and talked to him in this program and other times. And one of the things that he surprised me with in one of our early dialogues, and I never thought of it in those terms, and I started to read up on it, is when he said language has nothing to do with communication, it, uh, he, he would, <laughs> not nothing, but it evolved not to communicate, but to talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was an ascent, it, it evolutionarily was useful because when you can talk to yourself, then you can, that's the first step to kind of consciousness right. and planning. And uh, and so it's really much more important. About, and I got some of that from reading y- your book as well. And I wondered if you could comment on, sure. on that notion that language so if we go is back, better. If we go back to the split brain mm-hmm. patient and the, the tales they're weaving about why they do the behaviors they're doing, where's that coming from? So they have their brain is forming some um, schema, some understanding of what is going on. And out of that is coming a narration I guess similar to what Chomsky was talking about, yeah. verbal narration of of what is in that schema that then is what you, you know, you're talking to yourself about. Sure. And so that is where what you're experiencing is the content of that narration. That's what I do. I talk to myself all the time. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm not being facetious. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine doing anything without talking to myself. Mm-hmm. And well, I mean, so you'd agree with that notion that, yeah. that, 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 but, and I think, but a lot of people might then push further, and I, I don't saw know some of that. Agree. I don't know about the, the evolution of it, but yeah, the, the, but, the, but well, a lot of people might go further, and I guess I would have saying that without. Well, the question is, without language, can you be conscious? And conscious in the sense that really matters, right? So that, which, I mean, which I would argue is self. That, that, that's vague, right there. But. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I, I was going to get there. Uh, to me, when you talked about consciousness and you talked about uh, autonoetic, yeah. what really matters is self awareness. Right. To me, self awareness is at the heart of it. Yes. And we'll get. To, I want to get to AI, but and the oh, question is, can we? Well, not much. But to, when we talk about, uh, to me, if you ever had a machine that was self-aware, that then you've got the whole thing. We're, whether whatever it, whatever else comes along with it. So yeah, but let's okay. So we've got autonoetic, yeah. and so we agree that's the, the you know the, what we really want to know about. Yeah. But other animals certainly can have noetic. Sure. Sure. And or a noetic. Yeah. And that's why I like that that distinction between those three kinds because. It doesn't mean you have to dismiss animal consciousness to say that there's something unique about humans. If people get all upset about saying, oh, humans, uh, we, we say humans are different from animals. Every species is different from every other species by, yeah. def- by definition. I we'll, mean, so we'll, 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 we'll get some hate mail for you in a second because I want to talk <laughs> about animals and, and emotions. But do you think language is necessary for self-awareness? 
for what we call self-awareness. I mean, yes, um, the, you know, I think there's developmental data that uh, very well-respected developmental psychologist named Michael Lewis from Rutgers um, has a, a book on the, I don't know, the, the emergence of consciousness or something like that. And he, what he claims, and other developmental people do this too, that um, personal pronouns are key to the development of self-awareness. You know, it gives you something to hang it on. I, me, mine. And once you have those concepts, then it just opens up that world of, you know, I'm different from X as opposed. So this is what's called subjective uh, self-awareness as opposed to awareness of self as an object. You know, awareness of self as a subject versus an object. Any organism or any animal can have a body awareness for certain. Um, but that's different from knowing that it is you that is yeah. having the should, in that context, should I also over, obviously oversimplify Chomsky? The other, it's not when we talk about language; it isn't just labeling Absolutely. or expressing wants. For Chomsky, the thing that led to brain development is that the language is infinitely malleable. That that start that you can create an infinite number right. of different sentences, and therefore it opens up a world of possibilities. Right. And it's the possibilities that, in some sense, it, you know. So I think that's yeah. vitally important. So yeah, I mean, people say, well, people who are born deaf and dumb, they're not unconscious. Of course not, because they have all of the cognitive architecture that language has changed and, and make the human brain the way it is. Your point is that human brains are are different right. than, than animal brains. Not necessarily including, better, just different. Yeah, 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 different. And that's that's a vitally important to realize. And there are certain things that we can't assume, therefore, that 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 just because we share certain behaviors, that we share uh, cognition. And you point out that there's no that therefore there's no evidence that animals have feelings. More or less, and and I guess the what I want to ask you is it you make it sound like it's Occam's razor. If since we don't need to assume that animals have feelings to see their behaviors, even if it looks like when you know, my my dog looks sad or, yeah. or or embarrassed, if I all all the things that make me impute emotion yeah. to, to and you know I just and I and I'm going to always do that because that's what I do too. I pet yeah, my cat, yeah, he purrs. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. Now. Is that really Occam's razor, or is it also another way of thinking of Occam's razor to say, well, I don't need to assume it doesn't. Right. I don't see why why one is more. I mean, what what is true is we have no idea. Mm-hmm. And I guess I want to ask you if you think we'll ever know. I can't imagine an experiment. Right. I'd like to ask you if there are any experiments you could ever imagine in principle that would allow us to know. But I mean, is there anything other than saying it's a matter of opinion right now? Well, so you know, I think here's the, the thing. When I'm in the laboratory, I can, I have to adopt certain principles. Sure. When I go home, I don't have to have that hat on. I'm, a, I'm, you know, a pet loving person. I'm not a scientist, and I think that's true in life. That you know, there are situations where we need science, and other times we don't. In fact, it's not very useful. It's been said that anthropomorphism is an innate feature of the human brain because it was useful for our ancestors mm-hmm. to treat animals like little people use them in, in you know so co-op they lived with cows and the cows were part of their life and the part they were partners in farming and, but, and all but, of this yeah absolutely i can see it being evolutionarily useful but i guess the question i'm having is just because it's evolutionarily useful doesn't mean it's wrong doesn't mean and it's just right because it, exactly <laughs> it doesn't mean it's right there's i i think the point that's so vitally important in your book is it doesn't mean it's right we shouldn't assume it just because behavior is separated from emotion. And I, I, you know, you really converted me there or at least illuminated for me there. I don't know if I had an opinion one way or another, but 
that behavior and emotion are two separate things. Just because they are, it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's wrong. And I have no, I'm totally agnostic, right. even after reading your book, that to say that animals don't have feelings. I don't I just, say that. Oh, I don't, okay. I, I, I say, I don't, I, you there's don't know no either. way to test it. Do you imagine, can you, that, that's absolutely right. And, and I, I go home and I pet my okay, cat. Okay, so the question is, do you, uh, can you imagine if you had, not forget infinite resources, yeah, right. but infinite technology. No, can you think just, of any it's, way like, to... it's just like a, a methodological hurdle that no one has an answer and the, to. And the, 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 the stumbling block is language. With humans, you can ask them what they're feeling and thinking. With animals, you can't. Right. Is that so, basically the, the fundamental it's difference? It's a little more, more complicated. A human can respond verbally or non-verbally to something that they're conscious of, but can only respond non-verbally if they're not conscious. Mm -hmm. Animals only have the, the non-verbal mode of response. So there's nothing to fractionate the other states with. So, you know, I personally believe that animals have feelings and are, are aware Oh, oh, you do? Yes. Oh, okay. Interesting. But uh, not, as a, I, I not as a scientist. Not as a scientist. As a person, I believe that. Yeah. Now, Marion Dawkins, who's at Oxford and a professor in um, the um, animal behavior department there, and was a student of Tinberg, and she's a very well-respected person. But her thing is animal welfare. And she makes the point that tying the problem of animal welfare to the problem of animal consciousness is really bad because we can't prove animal consciousness. So it, it just brings controversy into the thing, and it's actually harmful to animals to tie those two things together. Of course we have to treat animals um, in, a, in, a, in a proper way. We can't just be cruel and, and horrible. I mean, there are standards in mm -hmm. every nation that I know of that for research, and you know, you could say, well, the research shouldn't be done. So that is a, that's a social question that we all have to address. Um, and I think, you know, valuable uh, findings come out of animal research. Um, so, but that's, that's not the question of animal consciousness, that that should be separated. Well, I guess I always thought that the, the criteria was feeling pain, whatever that means. Well, that's, and, that's so complicated. Yeah, because okay, maybe it's If you see a dog that's been hit by a car and you see it writhing and, and making noise, those are reflexes. I mean, you're not yeah. seeing its pain. pain I, I think that dog is feeling pain, pain, pain but, but that's not yeah. what you're seeing. Okay, and good. that's no, why it's, it's so complicated. It is very complicated. And that actually has implications in our society for legal things having to do with things like abortion. But it, there's which no, we to, it's no answer. It's we shouldn't, just, we should, exactly. I think that's, but that's a very important point. We, we will hear people say certain things should not be allowed because I believe X. Right. And it's just a belief. Right that we shouldn't assume is there because, and sometimes it's motivated by a religious belief and therefore it's irrelevant in my opinion, but but that's me. But uh, it's really important, I think your point is, if we're going to think about how to behave, we should try at least, uh, we, sh we should think what's useful to us, but, if we, but we should also think about what the science tells us at some level, right. which now leads me to the next question. I just want to say one last thing, that you know we shouldn't be using science to make these ethical decisions. But, but well, yes and no. I disagree in the sense we shouldn't be, I've had this discussion numerous times with people, but you can't, whether you can get an ought from an is, is an interesting question. But we, it, science may not alone determine things, but I believe that you need to be informed by the science. Informed. If you're not informed by this, and then use rationality. Right. And in my opinion, that basically comes as close as you're going to be able to get. A combination of the empirical evidence of science with rational thought should lead you to 
odd, but that's, you know, whether it's but 99% of the way or not. It's right, but if you have a question that can't be scientifically answered. Then, then absolutely, but there, but certain questions can, oh, and, you should, and you should at least, you should know what we know and what we don't know. Absolutely. I guess that's the important thing. I agree completely. And, and I think the whole point of this is that the things we don't know, but we do know that emotions are separate than behavior. I think that's, that's, or at least that's, that they're that's kind of where we are right now. Yeah, that, and no, but that's a profound, I mean, it's certainly worth a book, <laughs> but that's a really important realization. But given that, mm -hmm. and, and the fact that I think it should govern not just how we behave towards animals and abortion issues, I want to talk about what the implications are for, for that very fact for treatment, for medical treatments. Okay. Because I think that's right. something I know you talk about and something important right. that the public should be thinking about too. So the... Idea has been that the amygdala is this fear center, and so that if you find medications uh, that can change that fear center, you'll make people less fearful and anxious. So an animal is put through um, a behavioral test of some challenging situation, uh, whether it's some kind of thing that's dangerous to it, and um, so you give the animal a medication. If it behaves less in a less threatened way, in, in other words, is uh, less uh, uh, timid, then you assume that the animal is less fearful. And so when you give the drug to a person, they should be less fearful. But that's not what happened. And that's why the drug companies are all getting out of the anti-anxiety, anti-fear business, because nothing is working. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that you're studying behavior in an animal. You're not studying consciousness. You're not studying its fear. And so the person who is on the, the medication might actually find it easier to go to a party. Let's say you have a social anxiety patient. The patient might find it easier to go to the party and uh, but still feel anxious while there. And so the drug is a failure because the patient was told this is an anti-anxiety medication, not an anti-avoidance medication. But it's doing exactly what it was designed to do in the animal, which is to reduce avoidance and yeah. timidity. So... Um, I think because of the way we label things and talk about them and the assumptions we make about what we can and can't understand through animal research have gotten us into a big morass and billions of dollars have gone into this. And I think the medications are useful in helping a person cope with the symptoms of fear and anxiety, but not necessarily with the experience of fear and anxiety. Yeah, and that so has the, to be treated separately. So the, yeah, so they're just, it's again a problem of label, incorrect labeling. Right. They do what they're supposed to do, but that they don't do what they're claimed to do. Exactly. Yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> so but that's I mean, important. The, the companies could be selling these things in a thoughtful way that in a responsible people would way. understand I, that they, I don't, no one, I've been saying this for years, but no one has come to me from a drug company and either said, shut up or uh, that's useful. Well, you, you know, you started your life in marketing, right? And I think they've learned <laughs> it's a lot easier to tell people your fear will go away than you're, yeah. than you're sweating. Yeah, but now they're getting out of the business. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let me now, the last few questions. Okay. Uh, and it's easy, they're easier to answer because they're incredibly grand questions. Okay. And one of them relates to near the end of the book. Do you think ultimately consciousness is, a, is an evolutionary advantage in the long term or a disadvantage? Well, that remains to be seen. Of course, <laughs> but I want to ask you to... Well, it depends we, on we whether we like destroy the environment to the point where our kind will no longer exist. Yeah, so I said it does seem in the short term consciousness was in short term I mean the last few million years right. in terms of the human evolution and becoming the dominant species right. in the planet, but in the long term it may not be it may be 
much more efficient to be a flatworm or 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 or, or something else. Well, we know, for example, that you know when you have drastic climactic conditions, large energy demanding organisms mm-hmm. don't survive. The dinosaurs didn't do well, but tiny little mammals that had low energy needs did survive. So as we continue to change the environment in which we live. Each time we lose a species, and we're losing a lot of them now, it makes a subtle difference in the ecosystem. And so at some point, we're going to have an environment in which the genes that we have are not the ones that are good for surviving. And so whether our kind will continue to survive, I mean, the, you know, it's been an astrophysicist, I forget his name, said the Earth is going to be fine. You know, the, we're not going to destroy the Earth, but it's not going to be an Earth we can live on. Well, that's going to happen in the long term, no matter yeah, what we no do. Matter. That's the point. The it question matter. is, are we like hurtling ourselves yeah, towards hurtling, the you know, and But the interesting thing is that because of consciousness, we can change the environment that we live in. Right. So once, so if we're we're not, a, if it's well, true, if we're not a well, changes its environment, well, but we but do it in a grand we, way. Yeah, we can adapt. We can completely change the environment. <laughs> and, and mess it up. And, and that's what we're doing in a bad sense, but yeah. we can do it. We can move to a different location, et cetera. So, but, I mean, consciousness is responsible for our greatest achievements as a species, and art, literature, mathematics, physics, every medicine. What it means to but be human. also for narcissism, selfishness, greed, hatred, uh, you know, murder. But in an evolutionary sense, it's not only just responsible for what we value to be human, because right. consciousness and being human are the same right. thing. It's probably what makes us, has made us so evolutionarily successful to be able to be one of the only species, far I know, that can, except for maybe bacteria, that can inhabit the entire planet effectively because of its consciousness. Well, the other thing that we're the only, I think, species that can do is um, uh, decide to terminate ourselves. Yeah. And at, at a as an intentional act, exactly that we uh, that that we can uh, either on an individual level or a human at level with level, nuclear right. weapons or something, we can choose to do something that in an evolutionary sense is is prohibited, which right. is to 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 stop reproduction. <laughs> and this goes back, you know, again to the the first cells and the first multicellular organisms and how they acquired genetic physiological compatibility. But with the arrival of consciousness in the human brain, self-autonoidic consciousness, that was a rogue system that could make decisions that go against the better good of the entire rest of the body. Yeah, the rogue decisions, which may be, as you say, responsible for good and bad. Right. And, and um, okay, what's the future of neuroscience? Where do you think the next... And it's always weird. When people ask me that, I say, yeah. if I knew what the next big thing right, was, right. I'd be doing it. But I don't mean it that way. What techniques... Wh- where do you think the likely the greatest advances are going to happen and what questions are the most accessible? Well, we've never been more technically sophisticated than we are now. Um, The problem is that students come in applying to graduate school and you say, what do you want to do? They say, I want to study optogenetics. In other words, they want to study a technique. But what do you want to understand? Well, I'll figure that out along the way. So I think what we need is better training in asking questions and conceptualization. You know, I, I think it would be good to, for neuroscience programs to have classes on philosophy. And, well, physics, I would argue, is a good training. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we don't, we don't uh, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but we don't teach our students how to think, we teach them how to do. And philosophy teaches their students how to think. Maybe and physics. I don't know. I don't know. Although when I was a graduate student, my my, my first advisor always said to me, "Don't think, do." So you know, <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, I, I think, used to uh, think too uh, much. The, the big question: We need to 
know what to do with all these techniques. You know, we can have the greatest techniques, but if we don't know what we're asking of the brain, then we're not going to get anywhere. We have to have conceptualizations. Okay. The last thing I do want to briefly touch on before we end is is uh, AI in the sense that it seems to me, again, I'll give you my opinion. You can tell me why I'm wrong. I, I'm not an no, expert. No, 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 no. I don't want to, there's, there's so much one could talk about AI, but because I, my key questions here always are, how do we know how the brain works? Right. And there are fundamental stumbling blocks that we've talked about. And that's what's so challenging. Right. And as I say, that's why I handled simple physics, simple systems with the universe. But it seems to me that potentially the greatest tool to understand consciousness may be machine. And I'm not, I'm not someone who thinks it's around the corner or right. that it may even ever practically happen. I think that's overly hyped in so many ways right. when we call AI versus machine learning. But it will allow us systems where we can tweak knobs right. and see what works and what doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get a sense of whether you are, have any optimism in that regard. I have a lot of optimism for understanding cognition through that, yeah. but not necessarily phenomenal consciousness. Self, well, what I would say self-awareness. Right. You, so you don't think that machines will ever be self-aware? Well, my little brain can't figure that out. But yeah. <laughs> see, for me, I see no, I mean, I just see it all as physical systems. Right. And one physical system looks the same to me as the other. Yeah. I mean, mechanisms may be different and it may be, but, you know, I can imagine using what we know about evolution. To, so I, I, in the long term, I see it as possible. Do I see it as practical? Not so clear, but... I mean, possibly that, you know, that there were so many random biological twists and turns that, you know, came between mm -hmm. the beginning of life and us that maybe it's just some, you know, set of strange conditions that... Yeah, well, the question is, can we reproduce those conditions, not... Yeah, but you might not be able to do it, but, but you'd have to reverse engineer all the way back. Well, so, well, yeah, I mean, certainly from a physicist, and uh, and this is a... I've said this before, maybe even in the context of the podcast, but it's just what made me realize the stumbling block was when I first realized that if you wanted to build a, a, a regular computer along the lines we do with storage and memory that had the storage and memory uh, and, and, and processing power of something like the human brain, probably take 20 terawatts of power <laughs> right now, which is the total energy consumption of humanity. The brain uses 20 watts. That's a factor of a million, million difference. And there's something fundamentally <laughs> different about the right. way we think. And so there's a long way to go. And I'm so happy that there are people like you who are willing to take us step by step and have the patience to Little do that. Steps, Whereas, yeah. I, as I say, I just go for the low-hanging fruit, the yeah. universe. So it's been a pleasure to learn from you and to talk to you. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amison. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects. And music by Rickolis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash originspodcast.